The preaching of God's Word is in Luke 22, and verses 1 to 6. Here again these six verses. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill Him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad, covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Such verses are indeed familiar to us, and there's nothing that perhaps surprises us about this, and yet there ought to be much that surprises us. Here an apostle chosen and appointed of Christ, here chief priests and rulers, scribes, teachers of the law, you would think that their coming together would be in order to seek understanding, in order for their own personal growth and then public service to the cause of their great King. And indeed, we are greeted with words that should be present. For instance, we see that they were glad. We see that they covenanted. We see a promise. And yet this gladness was the wicked gladness over sin. The covenanting was not in order to seek the Lord and His blessing, but to refuse the Lord and indeed to overthrow Him. Indeed, the promise that was given was a promise against God in order to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that there are mere mentionings of names that can evoke the most abhorrent feelings within us. Some of that is personal to you, Someone perhaps has done you great evil, and their name mentioned elicits from you a reaction and response that is palpable. It actually causes and evokes a physical turning within your system. Certainly there are those names which stand out in history that bring forth the same when we understand their words and works, such as Hitler. Brethren, there is no greater name that brings forth or ought to bring forth greater senses of resentment and repulsion than that of Judas Iscariot. Judas was a covenant member. He was circumcised and taught the Scriptures. His father doubtlessly would have ensured that he was trained in the synagogue He was in church like you. He was attending upon the Word of God like you. And yet, he was far more greatly privileged in many ways than you and I are. For he was an appointed apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had such intimate relationship with Christ that he heard, as it were, his private teachings. He was gifted of Christ. So you remember when Christ sent out the twelve with miraculous powers... It's not recorded that the eleven came back and reported what mighty deeds were done by them. 
but rather the twelve came back, Judas included among them. And so he had miraculous powers, as an apostle did. And indeed, he was one who was appointed to be an ambassador for Christ. And yet we see, as he is elsewhere described, to be the son of perdition. He is indeed the one who would betray the Lord Jesus. Think of how this stands out in contrast. He as an apostle was to be of the highest office in the church, proclaiming Christ. And yet he instead is one who uses this access in order to betray Christ. You could see the same with the chief priests and the scribes. They were, by God's Word and providence, appointed to be leaders and teachers of the church. Again, themselves, covenant members, circumcised, taught the Scriptures, teachers of the Scriptures. And yet, they were consumed with themselves, their power, their greed, and indeed, they would be those who joined hand in hand in covenant against the Lord of glory. Our catechism reminds us that whereas all sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in the life to come, some sins of their very nature are more heinous in the sight of God than others. It doesn't mean, of course, that as we would consider them the least of sins is without that just judgment of everlasting wrath, but there are some sins which are more abhorrent in and of themselves. And brethren, here is one such sin. Catechism notes four characteristics that help us to determine heinousness. The person's offending. The parties offended. The nature and quality of the offense. And the circumstances of time and place. Think of those four categories. Who is it that's offending? It's none less than a hand-chosen apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And none less than the appointed chief priests and scribes. These are the highest officers of the New Covenant Church apostle and Old Covenant Church chief priests and scribes. So the persons offending have no superior to them beyond God Himself. Who is the party offended? It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not indirectly, but immediately and directly. No greater one can be sinned against. What was the nature and quality of the offense? It was none less than to hand Christ over to the false accusations and the most excruciating torment of punishment by way of crucifixion. This was indeed to put to death the incarnate Son of God, and that by an act of betrayal, which we'll consider, which was by a sign of friendship. Do you remember what Christ says to Judas Iscariot? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. So this, the most deplorable act, done with the most intimate of signs. And what was the circumstance? The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. On the very occasion when they are to be humbling themselves, seeking out their own sins, examining themselves, and looking to their need for forgiveness, they are at work 
preserving and, as it were, causing their sins to be multiplied. It is at least arguable, if not certain, that the most heinous of sins is in these first six verses. And yet, brethren, think for a moment that there is actually little said of Judas Iscariot. And yet, what's said of him before this, apart from the fact that he's the son of perdition, is that he was guilty of a relatively lesser sin. The chief priests and scribes were guilty of, relatively speaking, a lesser sin. Judas was a thief. The chief priests and scribes were envious and proud. What's the point? This outworking of this display of the wicked covenant of sin they engage in to betray and put to death the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the outworking of what is commonly acknowledged by us as lesser and acceptable. When was the last time you were on your face for envy and pride? And yet surely you and I would say we have envy and pride. When was the last time a little pilfering of goods struck your heart such that you said, if God didn't check me, I would break out to the most deplorable actions of sin. And yet Judas was guilty as a thief. You see here, in this most wretched of acts, the true end and direction of all sin. Your sin left unchecked would surely bring you to have a name which is used as a curse as Judas Iscariot's name today. So there's much here, but we ought not to overlook as well that in God's providence, the circumstance of it being the Passover, when the spotless Lamb of God should indeed be identified is at work as well, which we'll consider in a subsequent sermon later on. For our time this morning, let us focus on how this most deplorable and heinous of sins is but, as it were, the display of every sin's end or goal were it not checked by God's grace. So consider then three things. Firstly, the wicked purpose of this covenant of sin. Secondly, the wicked plan of this covenant. And thirdly, the wicked root of this covenant, which will help us to see both objectively how heinous this sin is, but also warn us by God's grace to take heed that as Christ warned Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. We wouldn't respond and say, listen, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. I'm okay, Christ. I don't need this warning that we would rather take heed and humble ourselves and pray. So firstly then, the wicked purpose of this covenant stated quite quick, quick, uh, clearly in verse 2. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. They've already tried to discredit him. They've done that 
publicly. They've done that with direct attempts. They've done that subtly, raising questions to try and catch him in his words. They've done it by accusing him of being, as it were, at work and in league with Beelzebub, Satan himself. And yet all of that was unsuccessful. And now it is they set their sights upon the only thing they could conceive to rid them of what they considered the greatest plague for their existence, his life. And so they seek to kill him. And we ought to know in context, this is not just killing as sometimes maybe lawfully performed in self-defense or in acts of just war and so on, or in capital punishment, but it is murder. And so they have no fault that they can identify. They are not those who may indeed do this in such a fashion. And to display the same, they enter into this wicked covenant by paying off a betrayer with these 30 pieces of silver. Significant fulfillment of prophecy as we find in the Old Testament that he was priced with this price of these pieces of silver. But notice to see the wicked purpose murder itself. Think for a moment how wicked murder is. It is astonishing, of course, to us that we can hear about murder in the news and take that as a common event. Murder is common today. And yet... If someone were to murder a family member, it would then become uncommon. And all of its filth and all of its wretchedness would instantaneously be felt by you. It's injustice, unjustly taking the life of one. It's senselessness, it's wickedness, it's cruelty. All of these things are true of murder. And yet to see it all the more, think of whom they are covenanting To murder, says it, they sought how they might kill him. Who is this him? Well, earlier he was speaking, and he spake of himself as the Son of Man, verse 36. This is the Messiah. And so their goal, their desire, and now the activity that they've set in motion is to put to death the Messiah. So you think of this for a moment. The one they're seeking to put to death is one that has only taught what is true and good. He's never spoken evil. He's never spoken anything that was of any fault. He only spoke what was true and he only spoke what was good for people to receive and to believe. And as some, though it seems few, Pharisees and others of these groups acknowledged the same and were saved by that word, he was speaking the word which would benefit them. So you remember, as he's nearing this time, he comes to Jerusalem and he shouts out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how often would I have gathered your children unto me, but ye would not. They were refusing the Savior, but they weren't just refusing Him. They were unsuccessful in refusing Him. So now they said, the only option we can settle upon 
is to end the man's life. We detest him. We despise him. Keep this in your mind. Because as we'll see, this most abhorrent and heinous outworking that's at work before us now begins in sins that are commonly experienced by everyone in this room. What's the point? You would be among them who would seek the destruction of the Savior were it not for God's grace. He's the Messiah. The one anointed by God with a threefold office, prophet, priest, and king in order to save sinners. He is the Son of God, the object of everlasting worship by the angels and the departed and glorified saints. He is the Beloved of the Father. Holy, harmless, undefiled. And yet, such is the depravity of these men that they desire to murder Him. There are cases that grip our society when, relatively speaking, good men or good women are murdered for senseless things. It's perhaps even more gripping when good men and good women are murdered out of a hatred born against them for no justifiable reason. And yet, here is the most unjustifiable hatred and detesting that ever existed in the world. And brethren, we ought to see this. That hatred has not subsided in our day and age. There may be few, if any, that are publicly calling for the overthrow of Christ's kingdom. And yet, every time that Christ's kingdom stands opposed, ridiculed, and indeed uh, uh, fought against, there is an opposition and a hatred revealed against Him who is only good, who is the Savior of sinners. So here's the wicked purpose of this covenant. To destroy the Lord and giver of life. Think for a moment of Psalm 2. And you see the foolishness and yet the unquenchable anger and fury of those in high places against the Lord of glory. Verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. If you wish to see sin for what it is, it's not just trying to discover heinous sin and all of its outworking and display. It's to see every sin for what it is, at least in seed. It is in seed this the setting of ourselves against Jehovah and against His anointed. It is the looking at God and saying, no, I have a better way. It is the looking at Christ and saying, no, I will not submit to this way and this reign of Christ. And given opportunity, it would show forth its festering wickedness in this most ungodly and abhorrent of fruit, in the open ridicule 
and murder of Christ. This is its wicked purpose. But notice the wicked plan, then secondly, of this covenant. It is, as noted, verse 4, to betray Him unto them. It is to find out a way wherein all the circumstances working together, we would be able to catch Him at the appointed time, at the beneficial time to bring this to pass. But notice, it's including something as a circumstance. Verse 6, in the absence of the multitude. Why is that important? It's because in verse 2, they feared the people. This is revealing something to us. You know, sin is ever wanting the downfall of God's cause in a way that in front of men we might still be highly esteemed. And isn't that true of your own sin? Your own sin is ever seeking out havens from the sight of men. And it puts on the face in front of others that you can appear to be good, wholesome, godly, holy, maintain your dignified appearance in the sight of men, and yet give no concern to the fact that your sin is opposing and seeking out the overthrow of God's kingdom. We might say, well, my sin's not that bad. But think of what the nature of sin is. First John tells us sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's not just civil lawlessness. There are some civil laws that ought not to be obeyed in our obedience to God. There are, of course, other civil laws which demand us to set aside our own prerogatives and submit because of our concern for the glory of Christ. But the lawlessness of which the Scriptures speak is fundamentally the lawlessness against God's law. Understand this. Sin is rebellion. It is the casting off of God's reign. Every sin is that way. Not just the sin of unbelievers. The sin of believers is for a moment the saying to God, no, not you, but me. Not your way, but my way. Not your desires, but my desires. It is, as it were, to take the throne, uh, the one off the throne who has the right to it, and to sit in the chair for a moment and say, here's what I will do. And so this plan is to overthrow the cause of God and the person of the Son of God, and yet to do so while maintaining the dignified approval of men. Let's be sure we do it in secret. We don't want others to know about it. We don't want others to see it. Because we know if they saw it, they'd oppose us, and then we'd also lose our stance and standing. All of this is, of course, revealing pride. And what does pride feed upon? It feeds upon self and the thought of others regarding oneself. It's astonishing that pride doesn't consider God. It is so consumed with self, it's as if self has pushed out the thought of God's glory to say the only thing that matters is my perception of myself and what others in this world think of me. 
And so the plan is set in motion in order to preserve both their own standing and their own applause in the sight of men and to preserve their position in the sight of men, that they would not be overthrown by what they might consider an unruly crowd. Isn't it interesting, all of this thought that goes into this plan in order for what? To preserve themselves, no thought to God's glory. Well, this is, of course, a heightened sin. But brethren, can we not see in this the aspect of every sin? Our sins are often a very clever thing. Perhaps you read in following McShane's plan the work of Jonadab with reference to Amnon as he longed for his sister and the wickedness of his action. And it's said of Jonadab that he was a very subtle man. Now this, of course, is by comparison to others, but let's realize one thing, that everyone here has so much as a Jonadab in his and her own heart that's very subtle and very clever to discover out ways to find out what they sinfully desire and to maintain an outward dignity among men. What's going on is no consideration for God. There's no watchfulness in that sense. There's watchfulness, but the watchfulness is over the domain and kingdom of ourselves, not the domain and kingdom of God. And moreover, it's not the watchfulness for what's truly good for ourselves. It's actually watching out for our lusts and our vain pleasures and wicked desires instead of watching over our souls that those very things would not gain so much as an inch in our soul. So their watchfulness, their diligence, their subtlety, their cleverness, their activity, all that's going on. Think of the mental acumen that must have been at work among such high-stated officers in the church. What gifts they had of learning all of these things, and yet each of them blinded to the very fact that they are but fulfilling what God's Word had prophesied. Some of these, particularly as scribes, would have read over Zechariah and Isaiah 53 and taught the Scriptures to the same, and yet never hear once considering that they are now the instruments of this most atrocious of sins at work. This, of course, in an elevated degree, But brethren, is that not the same thing that happens when we entertain sin? We're so focused on how do I make sure that others don't find out? How do I justify myself? How do I maintain my honor before my wife, my husband, my children, my parents, my church, my elders, my presbytery, and other Christians? How do I do so in front of my workmen and others in my neighborhood? And yet all of the consideration is empty of one consideration, What about God's honor? And what about God's glory? And what about my need for Him? This wicked plan is ultimately and fully for themselves, which is the essence and nature of sin. Your sin, however you justify it, is for no other purpose than to satisfy your vain and wicked wayward desires. The world loves to say it otherwise, doesn't it? 
The world loves to say, well, you're just being true to yourself. You're being bold and courageous. Look at you. Don't worry about this. Let the world change. Let the church change. Let your parents change. Let others change. But you be true to yourself. What courage it takes to go headstrong into sin. And yet, brethren, this is, of course, the outworking of the same individual who's in the background and now in the foreground in this plan. Verse 3, Then entered Satan into Judas. And he went his way, commune with the chief priests and captains. I do not mean to say and assert that there is demon possession at work in the same way, but we do mean to say and assert that the voices of our generation which are crying out to men, women, and children to be, quote, courageous and strong in their sin is from the same voice that was at work in Judas Iscariot. It's satanic. All of the celebration of wicked sin, the casting off of God and Christ, think of what's going on in all of those sins. It's not just the glad, the wickedly glad, perverted glad, satisfying of lusts. It is the solidifying of hearts against the only way of salvation. The culture of our day that celebrates sin is not just raising up the stench in the nostrils of God. It is wrapping the chains around and doubling up the gates of the bars imprisoning souls unto their certain damnation. And the world celebrates it. You can see this wicked plan as, in many ways, the master plan of Satan. Satan now launches himself into these things. And yet notice he's not merely at work in Satan as we read er- or in Judas as we read earlier. He was seeking to be at work in Simon. His work is very industrious, very strategic, very particular. And we ought to be aware that he's at work as well today. He's not only at work in those that he has dominion over as Judas, chief priests and scribes, he's at work at times in those who are converted people, not by way of possession, not by way of so immediate a work, as he was in Judas, but by way of suggestion and mounting up fears, as we will see in Simon's life later. This wicked plan, though of course they would have fooled themselves into thinking that it was their ingenuity that brought about so happy a success against ones they so desperately hated, is really but the plan of one who is using them as so many puppets and tools which on the last day will be shown that they were not men of such ingenuity as they thought, not men of such success as they thought, but they were pawns and tools in the plan of Satan. The world loves to boast of its independence and of its courage in all of these things. And yet insofar as it goes in the course of sin, it is showing, as Christ says, in John 8, that they are but slaves to sin. And they walk in the way of their father, which is Satan. 
Brethren, we praise God if ever we are kept from such open scandals, but this casts light upon the workings of sin in us and around us. Just as Satan was desiring the overthrow of the king and yet proved unsuccessful, praise to God, so when he's at work in your sins, when he comes with his suggestions and his appealing to you of the beauty of what you could have, of the prosperity that you could attain, as he did at the beginning with Adam and Eve, as he's doing now with Judas and the chief priests and scribes, as he does in every time when temptation is at work, he presents what seems to be appealing to us. And yet, he's doing so that he might overthrow what is best for us, even our everlasting salvation. This plan where they were made glad, think of that, they were glad would end in their utter demise. Apart from the grace of God, your every sin which has brought a smile upon your face, your every sin which has brought a sense of pleasure in your heart, would lead you to the same end as Judas Iscariot, where you would come to realize the vanity and brokenness and wickedness of your sin and die in despair only to enter into the agonizing reality of damnation. This wicked plan, so neat and tidy and outwardly, as they thought, successful, was really but, as it were, the noose that was prepared against Mordecai, which they themselves would be hanged in, as was Haman. Notice then thirdly the wicked root of this covenant of sin. Where does all of this stem from? Surely, these must have been notorious sinners. Surely, Judas, the chief priests and scribes, must have been very frequent in the bloody plots against others. Surely, they ought to have been frequenting all of the scenes of revelings and wickedness and harlotry and other such things. And yet, try as we might, we don't find such things mentioned of them. In fact, as you search the Scriptures, it's rather little that we discover written of Judas. And what we do find of him, though sinful of course, is relatively speaking a far inferior sin to what is transpiring before us in this passage. What we find Judas guilty of is stealing, which is of course the outworking of greed. Notice what's mentioned of his role among the apostles in John chapter 13. We don't know that every apostle had a specific duty among that band, but we do know of Judas that he functioned as, those, as the one who was the treasurer of the apostles. So for instance, notice in verse 27 of John 13, After the sop, so the Passover, bread, and so on, Satan entered into him, that is Judas, then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, 
because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should have something to the poor. And so he's the treasurer of the apostles. He carries what limited finances they had. Notice as well in John chapter 12, something similarly mentioned and yet with greater insight for our consideration. John 12, and there early on in verse 5, we have it recorded for us. When when Judas sees the ointment that was broken and Mary using it to anoint Jesus, notice he says in verse 5, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. You can see these two things put together. He's the treasurer, and yet he wanted money put in it because he was a thief. His focus, you understand, was on his temporal well-being. Now, it sought out illicit ways, namely through stealing. But see, this is the way of sin. Sin starts as a desire. And it finds out usually less flagrant and less heinous displays. But so soon as it begins, it's never satisfied. And it never being satisfied once more. And if unchecked and undealt with by God's grace, it would seek out even money for what? But the betrayal and murder of the Lord and Savior of sinners. Here's the point. The root of this wickedness in Judas is a root that each of us have in common. Greed. So it's interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll read some of this later this afternoon, Lord willing, Christ says, listen, you cannot be the servant of God and mammon. You know who would have been there to hear that? It would have been Judas Iscariot. It is Christ who said, Take no thought what you will eat, what you will drink, wherewithal you shall be clothed. It's Christ who would say, Judas present, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And yet it's Judas who never laid to heart the very teachings of Christ. He never approached his Savior and said, I struggle with the very sin you're putting your finger on. In fact, O Lord, such is my wickedness that perhaps at this time even, he had already begun taking in wrongly what was not his own. Instead of being exposed by the teaching of Christ, instead of being convinced by the teaching of Christ, he hardened himself and persisted in the nourishing of his lusts. And some of you need to hear this, that your persistence in your nourishing of your lusts if unchecked by nothing but the mere unearned, unmerited grace of God, will be your eternal undoing if you do not repent. Some of you comfort yourselves to think that your sin is contained. No one knows about it. And apart, of course, from Christ who knew all things, none of the fellow apostles knew of Judas's sin. Some of you may think, my brother doesn't know about it, 
My sister doesn't know about it. My husband doesn't know about it. My wife doesn't know about it. My children don't know about it. My parents don't know about it. My elders don't know about it. No one knows about it. And I'm okay to keep it here. But you take, as it were, the piling on of gunpowder with a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, waiting for the ash to drop and the powder to explode as it did with Judas. It's the Scripture which says, be sure, be certain of this, be 100% persuaded, your sin will find you out. Period. And yet some here think, my sin will not find me out. I've got it under control. I'm careful with when I do it. I'm careful with how I do it. I'm mindful not to do it around others. It's between me and myself. And yet all the while, just as even regenerate believers with David may do that which displeased the Lord. The Lord sees, and be sure, the Lord will bring it out. What ought Judas to have done but to have laid himself before the Lord and say, I am a guilty, wretched, miserable sinner. But it's not just here with Judas. It's with the chief priests who are handing the bag of money to Judas who likewise have a wicked root that blossoms, if we dare call it that, into this noxious and poisonous reality of murdering Christ. And what was it? It was envy that led them to this. Notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, a cunning man himself, not free of sin, yet aware of what was taking place, discovered and knew what was going on when Christ was handed over to him. Notice Matthew 27 and verse 18. Pilate is asking, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Isn't it interesting that the more subtle and less outward sins are the very source of the worst and most defiled of sins? It's again 1 John which tells us covetousness is what? Idolatry. And yet many of us are content to be covetous so long as we're not found bowing down to idols. And we have every word against Hindus and Roman Catholics and others who bow down to idols. We have answers for all their evasions. Well, we're not really worshiping the idol, worshiping God through the idol, and so on. We say, yeah, that trick has tried to be played before. We know about, of course, Aaron built the statue, the bronze uh, calf, and they said it's a feast to Jehovah. No one thought they were worshiping, as it were, this thing they just made. They knew they were worshiping, they thought, Jehovah by this calf. We know all of the answers, and yet were content with covetousness and envy. And we get disturbed that others get more than we do. We get frustrated and flustered when we have hard times and they have good times. We get upset 
when they prosper and we don't. And we start to say, why is it, God, that this is going on? And we ought to have our ears open to realize when we hear our voices and thoughts doing that, we are sharing in the seedbed of the scribes and chief priests. And were it unchecked and unreproved and undealt with by God, we would become the open enemies of God. What's the point? Brethren, this most heinous of sins which we would contend is recorded for us in verses 1-6 through is but the natural progression of every sin. Your sin is in its seed form less displayed, less heinous in its outward display, is setting its sight on the overthrow of Christ. Your sin is determining within yourself to say, I don't need the good that Christ holds forth to me. I don't need Christ. In fact, when I look at it, Christ is actually part of the problem. If He would just relent and let me be, I'd have a happier life. This is what festered within Judas and what festered within the chief priests. So it's no surprise that in the end, they indeed join hand in hand with smiles on their faces, with pattings on the back saying, look what we've accomplished. We've finally gotten our desire. And is it not astonishing that in getting their desire, they inherited that damnable offense of being those who would be guilty directly of the blood of Christ. Brethren, as we close, we cannot ignore the fact that the Lord is at work. We'll deal with that more in the future. But we ought not to be so disturbed by this as to think, well, then sin is so unruly that it must indeed be outside of God's control. And yet, as Peter himself would proclaim in Acts chapter 2, it was him, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye with wicked hands have betrayed and put to death. And so God, though free of sin, is masterfully working all things together for the advance of His cause. Here is the ultimate upending of the sinner's desire. In the end, their sins will do nothing for their gain, but will ultimately only promote the praise of God. Now, of course, Paul had to deal with this charge, which was falsely leveled against him, when he answered the question, you know what, should we sin then that grace would abound? As we be slanderously reported, as if we're saying, he says, God forbid. But we ought not to deny the fact that even this most heinous of sins was worked by God's grace to the greatest of good. To no credit to Judas, no credit to the chief priests and scribes, they give an answer for their wickedness. But God brings forth beauty of ashes. And brethren, here is a wonder for you. That as you see, as it were, the anatomy of your own sin and what it would result in if God did not intervene, 
you see also God's gracious provision to you in offering up Jesus Christ as the spotless Lamb of God. So what should we do with this? Well, you and I must come to see the ultimate end of what our sins pursue. If unchecked by God's grace, they would satisfy themselves with nothing but the overthrow and the destruction of Christ. This, of course, ought to humble us at the discovery of such sins as covetousness and envy or greed and lesser sins as stealing and so on. We should see and have attention to this and have our sense sobered to say, this is what led to the worst of sins. I need God's grace. What should we do? We should go to Christ then and say, oh God, I've discovered that in me which would be my undoing. Here it is in its wickedness. And so I ask you for your forgiveness. Here as well, we see the perfection and power of God in Christ. Christ knew all of this. And He would experience as the God-man the shame and reproach, the pain and agony of being betrayed by none less than His chosen Apostle and His appointed teachers under the Old Covenant. And yet, the Lord would work all of this to the work of salvation for those who would flee to Him by grace through faith in Christ. So brethren, as we see this covenant of sin, we see really what sin wants to covenant with us. It wants to seek our downfall as it did Judas and it did the scribes and Pharisees. It wants to seek shame cast upon Christ. And so look upon your sins in this light that you may then see the wonder of grace held forth to you by Jesus Christ the Savior. Would you stand with me?